Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, those producers, directors, actors, writers, cinematographers, production designers, uh, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, uh, composers, even choreographers and authors. We talk to them all. Uh, and you all know I love talking to them. And I hope you love listening. So, very excited about today's show. But before I get jump into today, last week, talked a lot about Dion Taylor's new movie, Fear. It is still out. Please go see it. But I have to big, give a huge shout out to Dion and his wife and producer and business partner, Roxanne, they gifted me with this beautiful, beautiful um, coffee table picture book of the journey of fear. Uh, it is, it's magnificent. I had no clue. Dion does these things to me. And I hate it when he does it. But this was a beautiful, beautiful surprise. Uh to be gifted this very limited edition book that uh, they had made up relative to this production. It's very reminiscent to me of what Jeff Bridges does uh, on films that he is in. He takes pictures, and then he puts it together in a book for uh, cast and crew at the end of the shoot. Uh, these are not pictures that Dion took. <laughs> so we have a difference there, but it's beautiful. Behind the scenes, some images from the film itself. The premiere, the premiere was just on the 21st, and he had this book finished by last week. Um, so amazing, and I just want to give a big thank you to Dion and to Roxanne and to, again, encourage everybody, go see Fear. You know, Night has a new horror film out uh, this week, you know, you can make it a horror double feature. Go to one theater and see that. Go to the other theater and see Fear. Uh, but thank you, thank you, thank you, Dion and Roxanne. Love you both to pieces. And now, jumping into today, today's show. I'm really excited about today's show uh, because of the films we're going to talk about and our one, both of our, uh, both of the directors. Our first director... Uh, is Nicholas Harvard. Uh, I spoke with Nicholas the other day, so this is a uh, this is a pre-recorded interview. I've known Nicholas's work for quite a while, quite a while. He has is an exemplary second unit director and first assistant director, vacillating between the two um, disciplines on different productions. He has been second unit director and first AD on none other than Yellowstone. Uh, you can't do any better than working with Taylor Sheridan and learning at his uh, footsteps. He also, same capacities on Wind River, also a Taylor Sheridan film. Uh, Chappaquiddick, which I personally love that film. It didn't get a lot of love or a lot of box office attention but so well done, and the action sequences, which Nicholas was directing as second unit director, 
wonderful. Rudderless, William H. Macy's directorial debut. He had Nicholas by his side. And, of course, going way back, the spectacular now. Uh, and Nicholas was also second unit director and first AD on that one. But now with the locksmith, he makes his feature directorial debut. He, he's alone in the saddle this go-round. Um, it's just, and the job he does is impeccable. It's amazing. I'm going to talk a little more about that in a minute. But at the midpoint of the show, we're going to be joined live with director Christine Yu to talk about, it's already one of my favorite documentaries of the year, um, 26.2 to life. Any of you athletes out there are going to recognize 26.2 as being the distance of a long-distance marathon. This film takes place as a documentary shot in San Quentin. And it is really, it focuses in on primarily three inmates, all of whom have more than 50 years of sentencing, to their credit. Um... Christine does an amazing job. There is a wonderful, wonderful um, athletic coach out there, uh, Frank Ruana. And Frank started volunteering his time a number of years ago to teach inmates as part of a rehabilitation program, one of many that San Quentin has, uh, to teach them how to run a marathon. Because essentially, learning to live... In prison life, in a prison like San Quentin, learning to live that life for 50 years, 60 years, it's a lot like training for a marathon. And the Thousand Mile Club was formed. And over the years, out of all the members, all the inmates who have participated and who took up marathon distance running, uh, while during their incar- incarceration, 45 of those men eventually did get parole and successfully transitioned to the outside. None of them have committed crime since. None have violated parole. And we're actually going to meet three people in this documentary, and I can't wait to talk to Christine about it. Um, all three hoping to get parole despite their 56, 60-year sentences where all of them would be in their like late 80s if they would serve a full, a full sentence. But she humanizes this documentary. She humanizes the people. There are no talking heads. They're the guys themselves and other inmates. Um, it's just, it's fabulous. And we really get to see these individuals as people, as human. They are humanized. And they all admit they screwed up. That's the first step. They screwed up. And they admit it. Um, But they all have their eye on the future and doing what they can. So I can't wait to to have Christine call in so we can talk to this. Because it is an amazing doc. And it will be at Santa Barbara Film Festival this weekend. So if you're going to the festival, and if you're not, you can get tickets to go still. February 10th and 11th, 26.2 to Life will be there. But we're going to talk more about that shortly. 
Now we're going to jump into The Locksmith with director Nicholas Harvard. The Locksmith, a thief. the story is a thief played by Ryan Felipe is fresh out of prison trying to work his way back into the life of his uh, his ex-fiance and daughter. He's helped by an old friend named Frank to start fresh. But it's really hard to start fresh when you have people gunning for you and he's forced to call on his skills as a locksmith in order to save his daughter. It is a taut little thriller. It has a wonderful inky noirish feel to it with a lot of the night shoots. Um, great cast, Ryan Felipe, Kate Bosworth, Ving Rames, who just makes, melts your heart. Madeline Gilbot, Jeffrey Nordling, wow, um, Tom Wright, it's an interesting character study, the production values are top notch, um, Nick shot with anamorphic lenses on a Sony Venice camera, used a, do- a lot of dollies, we're going to get into that in my interview, um, cinematographer was Jeff Bierman, who many of you have just seen his work in Emily the Criminal. Uh, editor, fabulous television editor, Lori Ball, Gossip Girl, Quantico, just an amazing, amazing editor. And to see her come on to this film, uh, she is the perfect editor to have for, for a first-time filmmaker but a, a, or a first-time director because Nick does understand all the elements of filmmaking. So, without any further ado... Take a listen to my exclusive interview with Nicholas Harvard, director of The Locksmith. Hey, Nicholas. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I am very happy to be speaking with you. Oh, great. Well, likewise. You have a very impressive second unit directorial pedigree. You couldn't have done any better than be working on films with Taylor Sheridan. And now here you are stepping up to the plate directing your first feature directorial and i love the locksmith i so enjoyed watching this oh great that's so kind of you to say your visual tonal bandwidth is beautiful your night shoots are fabulous great the camera navigation and your blocking within frank's garage within those party sequences the action and being second unit director on things like Yellowstone uh, and Wind River, I am not at all surprised of the fluidity of the camera movement in navigating corners and capturing the act, the action, but also giving us a sense of time, place, and flabbergasted, you know, oh my God, what's happening? I just, cool. and then you give us a great, it's really, we've got a great character study of Ryan's character of Miller. Really, just so well done on every count, Nicholas. Oh, very cool. Thank you so much. It's, so nice, it's really nice to hear something like that out loud because I can't, obviously, I can't tell anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it so many times. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Where did you even start? How did you even approach? The locksmith. Was it cast before you came in? Did, were you involved in the casting? Because I've got to say, 
You knock it out of the park with the cast, with Ryan, with Kate, Ving, Jeffrey Nordling. He can play good, bad, or indifferent and serves you well with what he does very well with what he does here. And Ving Rhames, watching him with little Madeline, who plays Lindsay, it reminded me of uh, a Hallmark telemovie or Lifetime movie he did years ago, Holiday Heart, where he's engaging with a young child. There's just this gentility that comes through. The casting really works here. So I'm curious how, you know, how involved you were with the casting and what led you to these guys? Well, it, yeah, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty long process. I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm rusty on the dates now, but I, I, I got the original script from Blair Krober years and years and years ago. Um, and it was, it was a very different movie. It was almost, it was almost like kind of a serial killer movie. Um, wow. Still had, yeah, it still had these characters, you know, still had Miller and Beth, um, the, uh, the the April abduction was a real abduction, um, uh, and it, yeah, and, it, and, and there was a just it was it was a um, uh, the, the the bad guys basically you know abduct April and then they go find the bad guys and that's that and it was a, and it was a, a good script on on its on its own but it wasn't really what I was interested in doing I was mm-hmm. like. I, I'm, I'm such a fan of n- noirs, and I, I was just like, all right, well, if we can turn this into a little bit of a detective story, since we already have a detective character, you know, like that was kind of like where I went with it. Um, and it was several years, and it wasn't until the the Joe Russo and Chris Lamont uh, draft that it um, it got some attention from the cast. Uh, so. Um, uh, Emil Hirsch was attached for a second, and mm-hmm. then he became unavailable. And then um, Ryan came aboard, and and Kate, Kate was, Kate was aboard during the the Emil days. Um, but then it was those two, and at that point we were kind of off to the races. Um, and then Ving joined, and uh, and then the rest of it was all, you know, it was it was through Gabrielle. Um, uh, just getting a supporting cast together, and it was like so. I was, I was very involved. Um, essentially, Roger Goff, one of the producers, and I were were two handing the, the casting, um, and uh, we we had so many great submissions. At, at one point, it was like kind of hard to choose. Uh, I mean, I was I was floored when I heard Nordland was interested. I was like. <laughs> I got on the phone and I was like, I don't know. I hope this is a real offer to get like to, to come, you know, from you to come do this because I'm, I'm such a fan. Um, and then same with Charlie Weber, uh, and then you know Noel and and uh, Noel, you know, his his resume speaks for for itself. Burke Floyd, I, I saw a tape and I thought he was perfect in this kind of, you know, we we're our our whole approach to the performances and really to like the movie in itself to, to make it a little bit a little bit past reality like a little bit lyrical it, kind mm-hmm. of in the old noir you know melodrama uh, way so that so and Burke uh, you know I, I worked with him on a on a, a zoom audition and he um, he just found that that um, that voice and it was perfect so it, it I was I was 
just absolutely floored. I was like, I can't believe my first movie. I'm getting such an amazing cast. This is an incredible cast to have, Nicholas. That impressed me right off the bat when I just saw who was in it. And I have to say, I think it served you well that Emil did not do it because I think Ryan is much better. Unless you were going to have Emil do Jeffrey Nordling's character. Right. No, no, he was, he was a familiar. I, you know, I never spoke to Emil. I, I can't say what, you know, what could or couldn't have come yeah. out of that. Um, I, I really admire him, and, I, and you know, it would have been a very different movie. Oh, yeah. Certainly, certainly what um, what Ryan brought to it. I mean, I couldn't ask for better. Like, the guy is such a pro and, and so thoughtful. You know, like, we would... We would email every night about changes to the to the lines for the, the next day, and he he came to the plate with so much uh, preparation. It's just like kind of you know everything a, a director asks for. Well, and with Ryan, what you also get here is that sense of naivete almost. He just goes lockstep. He's lo- he's in jail for ten years. He gets out, and still he wants to be the good guy. And he can't imagine that anybody wouldn't want to let him be that good guy. Be it his ex-wife, be it the cops. You're not doing anything and you're driving, yet they stop you anyway. And it's not the black-white scenario that we see play out so often. Here's a poor white guy. So there's a lot of things here, but he brings this great innocence as Miller. He may be streetwise, but he's also got this innocence to him. And that really plays well. The handcuff scene between Ryan and Madeline is to die for. That is what <laughs> that is just fabulous. Okay. Fabulous. But now once you've got all your players in place, you've got this this reworked script from what it originally was years ago. How did you and your DP, Jeff Bierman, go about approaching this from a visual standpoint for to achieve the tone? Because you've got familial moments and not just with Ryan and Kate's characters of Beth and and Miller, but also very familial with Ving and Ryan between Frank and Miller. That's its own family dynamic that embraces Beth and Lindsay as well. And that's very key here. You never lose sight of the family, but you find that balance with the action, with corruption. So I'm curious how you and Jeff visually approach that. Well, we, you know, we knew, we knew early on, we, we knew before we started shooting that we had a pre-sale to screen media and that we were going to have a theatrical release. Um, and so, which is, I mean, a, 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 another moment where I fell out of my chair and like, what? My, the, people are going to see this in a movie theater. I thought that those days were over. Um, so, uh, it was a happy surprise, and um, so we we decided early on um, that we wanted to shoot uh, you know widescreen format at two four zero aspect ratio, and in particular um, because we were we were very much uh, very much influenced by some of some older movies, some you know classic Hollywood noirs, or more specifically, I mean a very 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 specific reference was uh, Michael Mann's first movie Thief, um, where you know it was. Both those periods were a time where the cameras were a lot bigger, a lot heavier, and, and you had a lot of cameras on dollies, and they just you you had to you had to work around the the limitations of the of the camera system, and so we 
kind of went the same direction. We we got some old heavy uh, anamorphics. Uh, we we went with Sony Venice, which isn't the lightest digital camera around. Um, and we basically worked off dollies for almost the whole movie. Um, so that that put us in a, in a position to be able to make frames with with lots of people in them in the kind of classic seventies, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, noir uh, style um, and that, that in itself is conducive towards that family that dynamic when you when you have those scenes um, so that yeah that was a big part of it, it was just a kind of a camera and lens um, system choice well I think you did very well with the choices there um, I'm curious were you shooting night for night here uh, yeah yeah there's no we don't have any day for night I, those night, the night scenes are so rich and so textured that sc- your night scenes scream film noir, a very neo noir yeah, look. So I mean, it's it's stunning, stunning. You know, I'm very cu- cool. I'm curious about Frank's garage because that's yeah. such a central piece in the story and in the visual look of the film production designer Cassandra DeAngelis you know did you guys find a garage already tricked out like that or did she have to start from the ground up with that because it's amazing and the configuration with counters with stuff piled everywhere it really plays well especially when we get into that third act yeah that that search was uh, was tough I mean you know we were First of all, I mean, I can't say enough good about Cass. Uh, she 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 made something happen with almost no money that I will never comprehend. And the day, you know, the first day we showed up at the at, at Frank's uh, shop, uh, Ving came to her and said, and he, his literal words were, "I've never seen a set dressed this well since uh, Pulp Fiction." <laughs> <laughs> And he's done quite a few big budget movies. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. So you know, so obviously she was like, you know, like that, that was a pretty good first day for her. Um, but um, yeah, she we 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 saw so many different ones, and and you know, I'll, I, I'll say one of my you know one of my professional um, character flaws these days uh, is that I've worked on some bigger budget stuff, and mm-hmm. I have these kind of like bigger budget reflexes. That, I, that people had to like keep reminding me of like we're not a good thing and so I would you know I would go on these scouts and see these amazing spaces and look at the look at the wide shot from outside and like walk you know 50 yards away and say like oh look at this thing you know uh, along this highway this is perfect and then we'd walk inside and be a completely blank space and Cassandra would be like uh so I don't I'm not, I'm not loving this place. Uh, and finally, you know, we we ended up finding this the, the place we ended up shooting in, which it was half of the way there. It was a it was not a blank slate. It was something that she could work with. That was a it was a um, an old auto uh, shop, uh, and so we decided to keep one side of it as an actual auto shop, uh, where where they discover where where Frank shows Miller his pickup truck in the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, and the other side where, uh, where the couch is and where the counters are, that was, that was just machine, you know, 
machine shop to support the the, the other side and right. turn that into into the locksmith thing like with the with the pegboard with all the keys and brought in some safes and like turned it into the world that we needed it to be and and then you know and she she totally made the outside work it wasn't like it wasn't in the the perfect space that i would have loved you mm-hmm. know for that iconic kind of neo-western big wide crane shot yeah but i will say that like the the, the graphics she put on the wall the whole the whole entrance you know with the neon sign have ultimately kind of become what might turn into the iconic you know uh, uh graphic stuff in the in the shop so i i i'd say she 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 was totally right and i'm glad i came around and uh and it's amazing yeah it is amazing and of course you get into the richness of the color the coppery yeah. tones, the greasy tones. You get gre- these, what you think of as old school 1950s vintage uh, ugly green. It's covered, yeah. it's got oil and grease on it. And that patina, Jeff shoots it and lights it so beautifully that it adds a great depth and richness to the whole look of the film because you've got your starkness. In the daytime, you know, you've got the no-tell, no-tell, motel happening. But then you get something that is so deep and so rich, like the heart of this film. And it just plays so, so well, Nicholas. Uh, You really impressed me with that. Thank you so much. I've got to ask you, working with Lori Ball, Lori comes primarily out of television, which is an animal amongst itself, as you know. Your pace, your pace here is great. Your pacing that's, um, is great. That's that's a testament to to Lori, just just absolutely going back and back in and back in. Like even on days where I'd be like, all right, that's pretty good. She'd be like, just look, just, let's look into. It. She'd be like, come in late tomorrow, and I'll show you something else. <laughs> <laughs> she was unstoppable, like truly unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was she was on. Basically, on the film from, I mean, from this time we started shooting uh, until we delivered, you know, a day before the day before Thanksgiving this year or this mm-hmm. past Thanksgiving. So she was on it for about a year, over a year, um, wow. and was yeah. She was, she knows it. She knows it so much better than I do. Like I. <laughs> uh, There's and, uh, well, this is this is really the first time you've got you know because second unit. You're not stepping in there with editing. So this is really virgin territory for you to be sitting there with Lori. Yeah, this was the first time since my, you know, my last college short film in 2004. Right. So Exactly right. This had to be really some kind of experience for you to be sitting there with an entire feature film to I, find the beats because this has a, quite a few beats and you've got to find and you do between the quiet moments, the reflective moments, the action, and still build all that tension in there that we see play out in the third act. And a lot of ambiguity. You and Laurie throw in quite a bit of ambiguity, especially when it comes to Tom Wright's character of Chief Stern. Because you're not quite sure when he gets that envelope what side of the fence he's on. Indeed, yeah. And, I, you know, if, if had we not been tasked with making a 90 minute movie, that might've been a nice little subplot to get into. I, I, I you know, there's so many things that, you know, obviously oh, I, yeah. I would have liked to, to explore. 
Um, and I completely forgot to uh, acknowledge Tom Wright. You know, the reason Tom Wright's in this movie is that he was uh, he was my neighbor across the street in Venice, California, uh, <laughs> when I was eight years old. <laughs> See, it's not what you know; it's who you know. Yeah, totally. Like uh, you know, and we are. He and my parents became friends, and and you know, as I I you know grew up and was interested in the film industry he you know you know was interested in following my path and then one day i was in new mexico and i called him up i'm like hey tom can you can you come out here in a couple of weeks i need someone to play the chief for scale <laughs> he said okay oh my well you must have been a well-behaved child because if you had made a bad impression on him at eight years old i'm sure he would have declined your offer to come into this film Who showed me Star Wars for the first time? Oh, on a wow. VHS tape at his house. <laughs> oh my God! Well, you owe him. No, I do. I do uh, for sure. I would be remiss not to ask you about the last piece of the puzzle here with this film. That is your music. This is also the first time for you in second unit. You're not playing around with music. You don't have to worry about a score. Here you do. Talk to me about working with Marlana Sheets and the kind of scoring, the music that you were looking for as the undercurrent here. Because it's very unobtrusive. It doesn't lead us. It supports what we're seeing visually and feeling from the performances. So I'm curious about how you how you handled that for the first time. You know, that was, that was probably, I mean... Well, I'm not gonna lie. The editing, the editing uh, was pretty terrifying. Uh, I mean, incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, fulfilling. But uh, you know, uh, but you know, go, going into the editing, I actually called my director friends. I was like, "So, what should I expect?" <laughs> I, I hadn't seen anything, right? Was, I was walking into just an assembly of the whole thing, um, and the, and no, not a single. I called David McKenzie. I called James Ponsoldt. I called Damien Chazelle. And they all said, "You're gonna, you're gonna watch it, and you're gonna wonder how it's even possible. You're gonna want to just crawl under a rock and die." And um, and sure enough, like that was true. <laughs> like I walked in, and it, it it seemed impossible, like absolutely impossible, to make a good movie out of what was there, um, out of insecurity, obviously, out of just the monumental task of what 15 weeks was gonna be. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like it, it just seems impossible. So. And thank, thank God for Lori, who you know, who held my hand through the whole experience. It was the same thing with music. Um, I, uh, it was, you know, the music thing was. I, I, I really went on, on, a hundred percent on instinct. I, um, uh, you know, Marlena. It's Marlena's first score, mm -hmm. um, and, and we know each other. Um, I directed some music videos for her band. Milo Green, or one for her band, and then some for her as a solo artist, and so we just became really, really good friends. And for for her videos, she's so involved in the like in creating them and then uh, editing them. Like I would shoot, I would shoot them, and she would uh, do a first cut herself, and then we would go back in and like cut the cut the videos together. And so my recent experience with with cutting was all music video based, and I. Basically went in and like I didn't want to work with anyone else because she like we were, we just had such a tight relationship on like pairing music to 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 images and I you know I interviewed some people and I think um, I think my producers were a little concerned but ultimately they they went with it and um, and it, I, she is by far like the 
this decision I made on any of it. Like her, her score is you can't, can't tell it's a first film for her, and so many people have said that. I was we were just at the premiere two two nights ago, and Ryan, uh, who hadn't heard any of the music he'd seen an earlier like rough cut, mm-hmm. um, was he was totally floored, uh, and everyone's coming out like I just praising her work, um, and for that it was like. Early, I, I brought her on early, early on. We made a deal with her um, where she uh, could just start writing stuff based on the script, um, and because uh, I didn't want to use any temp, because um, I'd also heard both from director friends and from composer friends uh, that you know if you put in a lot of temp, you end up falling in love with it, and mm-hmm. so you know the director doesn't want to let go of it. The composer is trying to emulate something like that and is having trouble. And so I was just like, let's take that out completely. Let's bring Marlena, Marlena on early enough that she can just start writing stuff. Um, and we'll, we'll try it out in different places, which I've been told is an absolute luxury. And, um, and now I just don't know if I'll ever be able to go back. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and, you, but, and you're absolutely right. There's like the, the, the nuance of, of supporting without leading the audience mm-hmm. is tricky, and I, um, I was, I was very, you know, I was very new to it. I, I would just kind of react to what I liked, and Lori was the Lori Ball was the, uh, you know, kind of the adult in the room, like pointing out moments, saying like, "We're leading here. We're leading them here. We can't do that." And so Marlena and I would go back, kind of like you know, with our tail between our legs, color our let's try again. I have one last question. And yes, there is one last question for Nicholas, but you're going to have to hear that uh, later on tonight on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Because right now, we're going to switch gears and say a big hello to Christine Yu. Hi, Christine. Hi there. How are you? I am uh, delighted to be with you today. Well, I'm delighted to have you because... I watched this documentary, 26.2 to Life. This is one of my favorite docs already of the year. It, oh, thank you so much for saying that. This is amazing. Wow. Number one, I didn't even know that they had the Thousand Mile Club at San Quentin. I I didn't know this was one of the rehab, uh, rehabilitation kind of programs that they have in the prison system, primarily in San Quentin. It, I don't think it's really moved out into other uh, prisons uh, that much as, yeah. of the, as of this juncture. But, boy... Yeah, that's actually one of our long-term goals <sighs> is to get, to get people motivated and volunteering and going behind the walls. Um, there are actually a couple of other running clubs that were inspired by the Thousand Mile Club. There's one in Washington Correction Center and um, one in uh, New Hampshire um, that were started by, by administrators, teachers there. I mean, this is, as I'm watching this, we don't have talking heads. We don't have charts and graphs. No statistics are being thrown in our faces. Nothing political. I mean, this is just the guys, the inmates involved in this program, primarily three of them, Markel, Tommy, and Rasan, 
and their coach, Frank. And you do the most amazing job of letting the experience of their training, of running, and each of them, they humanize themselves. We feel their remorse. We feel. And I I spent 27 years in law. And let me tell you, mm. so I come at this and I did, I, well, I did primarily civil. I also did a lot of work with some criminal attorneys that I know who would ask for help. And I met or got emails or letters from guys wanting help, wanting an attorney to take over their appeals. And the insincerity was dripping. These guys... I believed every single word, every bit of emotion. Um, they truly, truly are benefiting from the Thousand Mile Club and this program. And I am so thrilled that you chose to showcase this and make a documentary about it. How do you even end up in San Quentin filming a documentary? I know, it's a crazy <laughs> story, Peppy. <laughs> Tell me this story, because I know how difficult it is to get into prisons, especially a max prison like San Quentin, but to bring a cam- you know, a camera in? Yeah. To make yeah. a doc? Uh, it's like, yeah. and you're a woman, and it's like, whoa, how do you, how, <laughs> yeah. where did all of this start for you, Christine? This had to have a uh, great jumping off point. Yeah, well, there's there's a couple of jumping off points, actually. Um, you know, I first read about the, uh, the Thousand Mile Club in 2016, actually, in a GQ magazine article. Oh, can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Okay. Yeah, in a GQ magazine article, there was a, it was just one of those moments that uh, an article came up on my news feed. It said, inside the marathon at San Quentin Prison. And it immediately, obviously, captured my imagination. And it was just one of those moments where by the end of the article, I knew that I had to make the movie somehow. Um, I'm coming from this, of course, though, sort of 20 years beforehand um, with my first writing assignment ever. Um, I was approached to write a story about a fellow Korean-American guy who had been falsely accused, wrongfully convicted, and sentenced to 271 years in California State Prison. Uh, It took about two years for my partner and I to write and research that script, and at the end of that time, um, the parents were filing an appeal on his case, and they really didn't want any you know, potential negative media attention. So mm-hmm. we had to basically kind of put that project to, to rest, but it never, it never not entered my mind in the subsequent 20 years after that, just the impact of, you know, kind of knowing that this person is behind bars and what is this person doing and how does one actually create a life in prison, mm-hmm. you know, um, I had never, I had always been interested in social justice issues, criminal justice issues, but I had personally never known anybody that was behind bars and somebody that I felt could have been my brother. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I saw the article about the St. Martin Marathon, you know, also not, I'm, I'm not a marathon runner, but I certainly do run for recreational, you know, exercise and things like that. So I could imagine the benefits and the benefits I've had from like a runner's high, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I contacted Frank Rona, the coach. I found him online and introduced myself and I drove up to Northern California to go see him. And, uh, but he told me I had competition when I first, (laughs) (laughs) when I, when I first approached him about doing a movie. (laughs) Excuse us. (laughs) Yeah. He said Condé Nast actually wanted to do it. So, um, you know, I mean, myself, I'm an independent filmmaker against a a big, you know, major uh, media organization like Condé Nast. Um, I didn't really think I had much of a chance, but I told him my vision and what I was interested in doing with it. And actually, in the very beginning, I was more interested in doing a narrative film Mm -hmm. uh, because that was more of my background. And then um, he called me back a week later and said that he thought that I would get the movie. I mean, that I would get the story of the Thousand Mile Club and that he wanted to go with me. So he arranged for me to be a guest at the half marathon event in August of 2016. And that was the moment that was really super eye opening for so many reasons. I mean, we we're go go down on this yard and you know you the the story that the, I mean San Quentin as a as a facility it has a, such a storied reputation and a yeah. reputation of violence and so when I stepped onto the yard we were going down there of course I was a little bit frightened going in there to begin with but I figured things would be okay because I was with the coaches. And um, I was amazed at almost like the festival-like atmosphere. <laughs> and I was just really struck by, you know, the idea that this is was kind of this uh, festival, like I said, in the middle of this prison. And that juxtaposition of feelings was, uh, was, was something that I basically wanted to continue to explore. Well, and then it evolved out over a couple of months, realizing that I sort of needed to get out of the way of telling the story and let these guys tell the story themselves. Well, and that's the that's the smartest move you could have made, because this is where the humanization, the personalization comes in. And I'm willing to bet if Condé Nast had done anything it would have been chock full of politicians and advocacy for both sides of the fence, uh, for rehab, non-rehab. I, I just have trepidation that that's how it would have gone. Um, whereas you're, you're looking at the soul and the heart. You're letting that come through with these guys. And from the beginning, right away, I mean, we see yard life. You know, and we see the cliques, the groups, even without one of the guys talking about the different groupings that are, you know, within the prison 
within the yard, within the prison itself. But you can see it, how they congregate outside. doesn't need exposition, doesn't need commentary. We see it. But we also see the casual nature. And we also, something that uh, just, I can't believe you actually got this. You were there while they were having lockdowns, and all of a sudden, prisoners, inmates, they got to drop to their knee, drop to the ground. Um, yeah, these alarms, these, these alarms that they have. I mean, that is definitely a roadblock to, uh, to, to, you know, it throws you off in terms of uh, completing uh, uh, the marathon. You know, so for for your audience that doesn't know, like, um, basically, an alarm can go off inside the prison for any, any, many, many reasons. Mm-hmm. But when they do go off, everybody who is a resident there has to drop down on the ground uh, for an uh, unknown length of time. And this can happen in the middle of, you know, things like the marathon happening. Yeah. <laughs> I was, that just floored me. And But what was really interesting is that during the nighttime, there was an alarm that went off at night, and you were talking with, or one of the guys was talking. Mm-hmm. And he yeah, dropped with Tommy. Tom, the look on his face was one yeah. of fear. It, it, it truly was. So even inside, something out like that happens. They have fear. And mm-hmm. I, the, the camera captured that, and that really stuck with me that it mm. it wasn't just an okay these go off all the time no it was almost it was peril mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because of the unknown yeah. and also you know it it, it it creates a dynamic because you know they have to get on their knees get, get on you know put their butts on the ground or what have you and you're literally standing over them you know and you so feel badly, it, I'm it sure. It's a weird sort of, you know, an unspoken, uncomfortable, maybe sometimes power dynamic. And, you know, but you just have to sort of continue along with the conversation. And, well, you know, I think they're obviously self-conscious of that. Oh, I'm sure. But then you also got to take your cameras inside the housing. You weren't just in the mm-hmm. yard. You were inside the housing. We really got mm-hmm. to see... With Rasan, we really got to see, I mean, my God, the number of books that he had crammed in these tiny little cells. Mm-hmm. And, you know, folks, you know, I don't care if you're watching on police procedurals, on television, you're watching on in film, you really do not get an idea of how tiny these cells are until you look at this documentary. Um, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I was very focused on wanting to, you know, show how the spaces in which they inhabit. Yeah. And keep in mind, even those cells they share with another person. I we, know. Couldn't even get, <laughs> we couldn't actually even get that, you know, because most their cellies would not necessarily want to be filmed and things like that. But it was really important to me to show their individual spaces because prison is a place that is designed to dehumanize and to make everybody the same. Mm-hmm. But yet individuality persists, you know, personalities persist. 
And so, you know, and that is sort of the, you know, and I felt like it would show people's individuality by showing what kinds of, you know, possessions, you know, that you're allowed to keep or that they want to keep in their cells. And, and it informs you, you know, so for like Markel, he really didn't have much. No, neither did Tommy. Tommy's very clean, is what he did. Uh, you know, <laughs> he's, he's, he's very neat, actually. <laughs> I, I kind of got that that impression. And Markel yeah, and Markel likes clean. Neat. Markel likes clean laundry. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, it's like yes. he's got a clothesline hung up on the one wall. And his his clothes are there, and like as soon as he takes off his running gear with sweat, he's washing it, hand washing it, in the little sink, in his cell. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then you know, and you see Rashawn, and he's just—it's like he has a thirst for knowledge, a thirst for life, with all the books he has, and all, he even has little tchotchke things on his shelves in the back. Um, mm-hmm. but he's so tall. I don't even know how he fits in there, but you, <laughs> we really, we see that you don't need exposition for that. We see it. We feel it. But then when you're talking to them, even outside in the yard, of course, most of the talking, the more intimate talking you're doing with them when they're in their cells. Um, but even mm-hmm. when they're outside, especially Markel. Um, you really see a difference in them when they're outside, mm-hmm. breathing air, running, finishing running. Um, it's ju- it's just I was so struck by what you show us, what the camera catch- captures. But it this begs the question: How once you got permission to film in San Quentin, which that still blows my mind. Uh, to have free reign down in the yard and then access to the cells. But once you had that permission, when did this start taking shape as to who you were going to focus on? Because even though you talk to, we see a lot of guys on camera and a lot have things to say about the dangers of being there, the gangs that are there, um, that they fear for their safety. Um, we get such great honesty and thought from Markel, Tommy, and Rashawn. You know, mm-hmm. no holds barred. I screwed up. I was dumb. I was stupid. They own it. They own what they did. Yeah, mo- most of the guys that I spoke with, did, you know, did own it. They did have remorse. They did. They were very upfront, actually. You, you know, um, I would say that a lot of the guys in the running club are are ready to come home. Yeah. The interesting thing is now about 90% of the people that you see that were featured in the film are now out. I that that I think is just spectacular. But I'm curious how you honed in on Markel, Tommy and Rasan. Mm-hmm. Um as the three um, besides the fact mm-hmm. they all three have Markel's quieter. Tommy is beyond exuberant. Rasan is just high energy. But all of them have their eye on the future. Even Tommy, he said, I may never get out, but in case I do, 
I want to be the best husband and father I can be. Um, mm-hmm. So they stand out. Yeah. They had to have stood out to you for you to pick them. Yeah, for sure, for sure. When I first went in there, I was introduced to Markel. He was one of the first people I was introduced to because he was the gazelle, you know, yeah. the gazelle of San Quentin. He broke all the records. He's the fastest runner. Um, so I kind of knew I had to feature him because he was sort of the, the guy in the club. Mm-hmm. So that was already sort of a given. Um, that first day, I also met Rasan. Um, he was reporting, actually, for the newspaper on the race that day, the half marathon. Um, and what struck me about him was that here he was, he's in prison and he is cracking up. He's laughing. He's, um, you know, making jokes and it just kind of blew my mind. And it really made me realize how much I had dehumanized, I guess, people in prison that, that, that what people in prison don't laugh or don't, you know, that, that they aren't themselves, you know, so it, it, it kind of made me step back for a second, because even though I have a friend who is locked up, I think because, he, I, I, you know, I still firmly believe that he's innocent, um, it sort of allowed me still to dehumanize the rest of the population, even though I even consider myself progressive, right? Mm-hmm. But so when he did that, it, it really, it, it, it stopped me in my tracks for a second. And I was like, you know, this, it seems like this guy doesn't belong here. Um, and then I went online and I did a lot of research on him. I saw that he had uh, published a bunch of essays uh, that were really, that may also made me laugh. Um, and I thought for a person with a 55 to life sentence who can find humor and was incredibly eloquent in his communication. I thought, well, I, I need that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He needs that. And he also then turned out to be the slowest runner. So I had, you know, the fastest runner, the slowest runner. And then um, originally I was planning to follow a guy who had just gotten out and maybe his reentry story, but he uh, didn't really want to participate. So um, I was just sort of keeping my eye open. And I was put in touch, actually, with Tommy's wife, Marion. Mm-hmm. And I'm based in L.A., and on my, one of my drives up to Northern California, we decided to stop. And I decided to stop, and we, we met at a restaurant. And I, I, I wasn't sure what to expect at all. You know, I thought it was just going to be maybe a quick cup of coffee or something. We ended up talking for about five hours. Wow. <laughs> wow, and By Christine. the end of it, I was like, you have got to get this movie. Wow. So, you know, and then his story really then evolved into, of course, you know, what is it really like to be a, a father, a uh-huh. husband from prison? And she was willing to, I felt like we had a great rapport and I felt like she would be open. And so that's, you know, what that led to. And I felt very fortunate that all three of these guys, their, their own stories, you know, brought up kind of organically just 
different aspects of prison life. Mm-hmm. And of course, and you know, we also, in addition to Tommy's wife and his son, we also get to see his parents. And mm-hmm. you've got them on the phone one day, and I, I just crack up when Tommy says something. His dad says, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk <laughs> about that. Um, you know, dad draws the yeah. line. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, Larry. Uh, yeah, and then, of course, it's we've also got Rasan's mother in there. Mm-hmm. And yes, she, yes, and she, I, I want to add something a little bit fun too, a bit of a, a surprise. Um, Rasan is actually getting released this week from prison. I knew it was coming up. I, you know, I knew it was coming up, and it was supposed to be in in possibly January, but this week, that is phenomenal. Yes, it looks like actually Wednesday. <laughs> oh my God! Will he yeah. come to the film festival? Um, he can't come to the film festival because they have um, travel restrictions. Oh, okay. And we weren't really quite sure, but, you know, we do plan to, uh, you know, bring him to future screenings, certainly. Because Rasan, you know, so people understand um, this. He is a Pulitzer Prize finalist, co-hosted a podcast, Ear Hustle, from inside the prison. Worked on the San Quentin News, which is put out, and you can even go online and you can get this. And you've got the inmates, they publish it, they edit it, they write it. I, it is amazing. It's a bona fide newspaper. It is a real, and, uh, you know, what I didn't even realize, and I felt really dumb that I didn't know this. I'm a member of Society of Professional Journalist, Journalism. I mm-hmm. did not realize that there is a chapter in San Quentin that the, there you go. that these guys belong to. So I was just, it just blew my mind. But Rasan is also... Yeah, I, I have a running joke with Rasan because he's, you know, has won so many awards. He's always so busy that I, I said, look, you know, your resume is better than mine. His resume, and <laughs> he's now directed a film. Now he's directing yeah. a film about Tommy. I mean, yeah. oh, yeah, you know, and then we, we take a look at Tommy. And the great thing is you follow through on their stories. So we, we see goals being attained, you know, ebullience um, and just pure unadulterated joy uh, mm-hmm. with Markel, with Tommy. Just mm-hmm. and then Frank, who is just you see the little smile that he has, and it's like a father, you know, mm-hmm. leading his leading his children out into the world almost. Mm-hmm. You know, AKA the godfather of running. Yes. It's what they call him. <laughs> you know, I have this whole film for the emotion that it that it brings uh and that it creates. This falls on your DP, Cliff Trayman, and your editor, Marcos Moro. I got to tell you, the editing is phenomenal. Cliff's camera yeah, work. I yeah. am in love with Cliff, Cliff's cinematography. We are in the moment with each footstep that each man takes around the track. And then, you know, 
we get a pause when they get a pause. When they sit down to breathe and catch their breath as they speak to us, we get take that same breath. We sit down. But otherwise, we're lockstep with all of these guys. With these guys. We fe- see them. We feel them. We feel see them step out, step ahead, push themselves. This is not something we see every day. This is not something the media shows us. This is not something entertainment shows us. Um, mm-hmm. Just outstanding. And then you've got Marcos, who's got to put all this together. You know, how... how... Yeah, the editing was <laughs> crazy. The editing, it was, it was truly a uh, thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> I mean... Or maybe 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. It was very, very difficult. When did you and Marco start seeing a through line here for this story? Um, I'm a big fan of Marco's editing. I'm well familiar with it and what he did with the series Ancient Aliens. So he's mm-hmm. very good with documentary style, documentary without making it feel preachy. Yeah. I was, I was, I was lucky in the pandemic for a few reasons and he's one of them for sure um we were happened to be working on a show together and then the pandemic hit and you know this is an independent film i don't really and this is something that i was doing on my own time Mm -hmm. you know i regularly work as as a series producer so um when the pandemic hit and everybody was laid off uh he you know, we were talking and I was talking to him about this and he said that he would be willing to, um, you know, to take it on. So uh, he helped really get that first, uh, you know, I, I had been editing this in pieces, mm-hmm. you know, getting sort of the, the story through lines of the three guys and, uh, you know, but in terms of kind of putting it all into that marathon superstructure and uh, which was just you know, we also had like an embarrassment of riches of in terms of footage. I'm too. sure. So that was really the difficult thing. So, yeah. So he stepped in in about 2020, and you know, the movie went through a lot of different iterations. I mean, and we just actually really finished the uh, the edit last summer. So it it. it I took about almost nine months off from it because I was doing another project mm-hmm. and, you know, came back to it. And we were like, OK, we've got to finish. We've got to finish. But then you also bring in, I've got to tell you, the score. I love the mm. music. I love it. And what, former inmates? Yes, Antoine. Wow. Wow. Yes, this guy is incredible. He, I met him when he was still incarcerated at San Quentin. I actually met him through Rasan. Uh, Antoine himself is one of the co-creators of that podcast, Ear Hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, completely self-taught. He does not, did not, I don't know if he still does know how to read music or write music. Um, the guy's a genius, I'm convinced. <laughs> um and when I was trying to find music, you know, to edit and trying to find temp music, nothing that I could find seemed to really 
capture the sound right. of San Quentin that I was feeling. Um, and so then I happened upon his work and I'm like, this is it, you know, it, this is it. Um, and then during the time that we were making this, he was actually released, I believe in 2019. Mm-hmm. And then um, I had approached him. I think this is obviously the longest piece, you know, project he's worked on in terms of length. Um, he, this is the first time he's ever scored a movie. Uh, and so we worked together for over a course of a year. And uh, man, I mean, I, I felt like he just came up with something really original and beautiful. Um, and then a lot of the other music, like a lot of the rap tracks and stuff, uh-huh. that was also all produced by um, and performed by Inmates. Uh, artists that are currently incarcerated. Wow. The, the guy who, who produced it also got out on a commutation in 2020. Um, his name is David Jassy. Um, and the songs were taken from a CD he made called San Quentin Mixtape mm-hmm. uh, that gathered a lot of what they call YOP, Defender Program um, uh, guys, and he helped them tell their stories. So, wow. yeah, it's all, you know, very authentic to the fans of San Quentin, I would say. And I, I'm definitely very proud of being able to, you know, really incorporate these guys' work. And same with actually our pickup shots. I ended up collaborating all with an all-incarcerated crew for <laughs> oh my some God. of our last footage. Um, wow. Over the course of making a film in 2019, our principal photography stopped. So actually at that time, I still would go into the prison to run and work out when I could. Mm-hmm. And so Rasan and I would always end up running together because we were both slow books. <laughs> and we were running one day and he's like, you know, I really want to, my dream was always to become a filmmaker. You know, would you help me out? So um, so I became an official volunteer over at the media center and then helped him we got a grant actually from Sundance and the Marshall Project so that he could basically make his first short film that was just finished also called Friendly Signs and it's about Tommy Wickard uh and his quest to uh do ASL and create a friendly space for for the deaf people that were coming into the prison so uh, we hope to be getting that this year as well I mean, this, the whole documentary from start to finish, Christine, it's inspirational, it's hopeful, it's filled with positivity. But more than that, it shows us the humanity. They may, these people mm-hmm. may have committed heinous crimes in their youth. And for these guys, mm-hmm. it was in their youth. Yeah. Um, but to see. There is, um, yeah, there's a, you know, within the world of criminal justice, um, there's a lot of research that has been done that most people, quote unquote, age out of crime. Mm-hmm. So many people commit crimes when they're young, when, you know, it, it takes energy to commit crimes. <laughs> so, so as people get older, they may be safe for society is, is basically what the research shows. Um, and every single person that has been released from the club there is zero percent recidivism among the release members of the club 
And when you compare that to the national average, which is 67% recidivism, um, to me, that really also speaks to the power of community engagement Mm -hmm. and what these coaches and these volunteers, you know, how they're helping to create community and which is very real. And they've helped people create, have continuity also in relationships, like as they reenter society. Mm-hmm. Um, and Martell is really a great example of that, of course. Well, you know, something, and the fact that we get to, to see and hear about some of the programs, the rehabilitation programs offered in San Quentin, that are, they're not offered in all prisons. They're offered in very few, no. as a matter of fact. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this documentary, in all honesty, this should be a tool for adv- advocacy groups to use to urge prison reform and encourage rehab programs. Because yeah, thank you. That's exactly what we want to do with it. This that's exactly what we want to do. We want to get the film into the hands of people who can really do good work with it. And you know, because I think with rehabilitation, before I made the film, I I really had no idea what that meant. It, yeah. Rehabilitation was kind of an empty word to me, really. Um, so that's why I think people if they're able to see something of the process, they can better understand it. Yes. And also hopefully it creates a, an, an, an argument for um, implementing more of these programs so that, because what I found in a, and hopefully you, you found this too, Debbie, that a lot of these guys, you know, who have been locked up like Tommy, Markel and Rasan, they've done so much work and therapy on themselves mm-hmm. that, you know, they can also, if they get out, they can really help our society yeah. and help heal and help heal the people that, you know, that, that need it most. And I think they can be real assets to society. Well, and, and to hear them even speak about the victims and the victims' families who were affected, and even their own families, by their stupidity and their disregard for life at what they did at such a young age, it says a lot that they are all maturing. They are learning. They are growing. Um, just, I am just, I can't tell you how impressed I am with this documentary, Christine. This is just so spectacular. Um, and I can't wait. I can't wait for people to see it at Santa Barbara this weekend. I Yes. We're very excited to be screening at, at Santa Barbara. Friday at 1 sure. o'clock, Saturday at 1020. Yep. I think you're going to need, they're going to need to add a couple more encore performances for this one. <laughs> in all honesty, because once people see this, it will give them food for thought. It will open their eyes. Uh, it just, an amazing job, Christine. Uh, uh, just amazing. Okay. Thank you so much, Debbie. Yeah, we're looking forward to sharing the experience with people and, um, you know, hopefully draw new people into this conversation of reform. And, um, you know, of course, you know, hopefully that they um, walk away, uh, that they spent their time in in a positive way. So, 
Well, and, that. you know, and if you talk to Rasan when he gets out, yes. please tell him he's got a big fan in me. <laughs> I Yes, I certainly will. Yeah, I'm actually going to go up and, and film him oh. uh, getting out. You know, I, I feel so lucky to have become part of a thousand miles community in many ways. So I sort of can't stop filming is, is the issue that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> There's an, always another chapter to the story. There's always another chapter. Oh, Christine, this has been beyond a delight getting to talk to you. I know Pam's in there frowning because I went way over today on the show. But for a film this important, um, hey, it's my show. I'm going to go over. Um, so <laughs> I hope we get Thank to. Thank you so much. This was a delight. I hope we get to chat again in the future, Christine. Um, Absolutely. And, I would love that. And definitely. I want to see more from you. I want to see more of your projects. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. Very much appreciate your uh, support. Christine, thank you so much. And have fun this weekend at Santa Barbara. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks, Christine. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, and that was Christine You Yes. Got carried away on this one. It's that good a film. It's that good a documentary. Uh, and I can't encourage everyone enough. Santa Barbara International Film Festival this weekend. See it. 26.2 to life. And of course, out right now, The Locksmith. So, that is all the time we have today and more. Uh, so, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is... Behind the Lens.